This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu forward slash store to download this book or purchase a physical copy. Intellectual Schizophrenia Culture, Crisis and Education by Russus J. Rushduni. Copyright 1961, Dorothy Rushduni and the Rushduni Irrevocable Trust. Calcedon, Ross House Books. Chapter 10 The End of an Age One does not have to agree with the philosophies of Spengler, Toynbee, or Borjaev to recognize that we are at the end of an age. Although no age has been without its tensions, crises, torments, and doubts, these factors are healthy and constructive when they stem from the struggle for and pursuit of a goal in terms of an assured faith and a governing hope. They are then spurs to action rather than grounds of indecision. When, however, man has lost his sense of identity, his basic faith, and has turned from a governing hope to wishful thinking, the absence of meaning results in an absence of coherency of action and an incapacity for self-defence. A culture not convinced of its own value is incapable of its own defence. Its energy is replaced by apathy and its convictions by the torments of self-analysis. As a result of such a collapse, the, quote, millions of Romans were vanquished by scores of thousands of Germans, end quote, It is not necessary to agree with the faith of a past age in order to recognise its achievements. The important aspects of medievalism can be granted and its contributions to Western culture appreciated without an acceptance of medieval thought. Similarly, the results of the culture of the Enlightenment, seen as coming to flower in state education, can be recognised and accepted without a requisite assent to the underlying structure of thought. What are some of the conspicuous results of the presently dying culture and, in particular, of its schools? First of all, by its studied rootlessness and its clean slate concept, it has clearly broken the backbone of traditional Christianity, which now survives only as a peripheral, derivative and truncated structure. This is an achievement of no small merit. The reformers found their work soon overwhelmed, not only by the Enlightenment, but by traditionalism, Arminianism and Pelagianism. The faith and doctrine of the Church was more emasculated by its adherents than by its foes. Christianity today better commands the adherents rather than the allegiance of its followers, and its faith is so conditioned by the age as to be almost equally vulnerable with it. True Christianity today requires so radical a break with the Church and Christianity at large and with contemporary culture as to be both an unpopular and limited force and yet able alone to break with the present culture in terms of a governing hope. The vested Church today, by hurling its anathemas at its missions, both writes its own death warrant and guarantees the creation of the Church of the Future. 
epistemological self-consciousness is accelerated by the studied rootnesses of this era and the groundwork prepared for cultural maturation. Since not all roots, religious, economic, familist or political, are of necessity good roots, the studied rootlessness of this dying era has been effective indeed in wiping the state clean not only of defective Christianity, but all its religious and secular rivals as well, all now floating in securely on the floods of historical process. Second, even as the Roman Empire created the conditions for cultural exchange and receptivity to Christianity, from Britain to China, by its peace and commerce, even at the moment of sickness, so the modern culture has created an even wider condition of worldwide receptivity by its radical action on all existing cultures. The development of media of communication is no small contribution. But even greater has been the development of receptivity by the breakdown of past cultures. The 19th century saw an extensive development of missionary activity in areas newly impressed by Western superiority and ready to accept its religion as an aspect of that superiority. The effect of both westernization and modernized Christianity was to accelerate cultural decomposition, to aggravate old hostilities and create new ones as the traditional cushions against conflict were eroded. But while mass man is thus being created on a worldwide scale, man still remains basically the God-created, though fallen man, inescapably responsible for better or worse. The rising pressure of cultural decay will thus only intensify both the anxiety and receptivity of man and makes possible for good or ill the rise of a new culture. No better opportunity exists for a worldwide but pluralistic culture to develop. Third, the culture of the Enlightenment has made no small contribution in destroying itself by promulgating through education and in every other way possible its every standard of self-fulfillment as well as social unity, it has made possible its own death at the hands of its children. Liberty, fraternity and equality, the reign of reason, deliverance from the past both historically and psychologically, the reign of a sovereign and messianic state, economic utopianism, the reign and freedom of love, human fulfilment in and through sex, all these and other ideals have been stridently proclaimed, only to end in frustration, its own triumphs it has marred by its extravagant hopes, and thus prepared the way for its savage abandonment. Fourth, but closely connected with the foregoing, this worldly orientation of the Enlightenment has been a necessary corrective to the unbiblical otherworldliness and spirituality of traditional Christianity and especially other religions. The bitter cynicism of pies in the sky by and by religions has been wholesome in its effect and has required faith to be relevant. The biblical honesty of Adam, who felt blessing should be a present fact, was manifest in his frank question, quote, The biblical honesty of Abram, who felt blessing should be a present fact, was manifest in his frank question, 
Lord, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? Genesis 15.2 Without agreeing with contemporary educational relativism, or its faith in easy answers, we can welcome its insistent restoration of the dimensions of fulfilment to life with this corrective, that the biblical faith offers not an easy life, but rather a good one, as witness Psalm 23. The triumph of Christ's kingdom has both its historical and eschatological aspects, and the dimension of fulfilment is a necessary aspect of Christian faith and cultural hope. Fifth, the dominance of the church and outside Christianity of pagan priests and shamans has been broken, an essential and healthy aspect of this culture. Although replaced now by the dominance of the state, this being a like evil, the dominance of the state is more vulnerable to cynicism and hence decay. The emergence of a truly pluralistic society with cultural freedom and growth requires the destruction of the claims of both church and state to be the kingdom manifest. The degeneration of the Enlightenment into barren analysis has been destructive of the claims of every institution, church and state included. Sixth, the humanism which developed out of the Enlightenment was both a reaction against Christianity and a product of it, and, despite its very serious defects, was an important and significant cultural agent. While the culture of humanism has often meant the debasement of popular culture, the debasement is not all demerit by any means. The despised dime store culture of today is a necessary and invaluable corollary of humanism which is not necessarily anti-aristocratic and certainly conducive to a cultural law of supply and demand which is ultimately capable of more virile results. Humanism, by its emphasis on time as against eternity, will of necessity lead its followers to a congeniality to the ephemeral. But the ephemeral is by no means necessarily to be despised, for to despise the ephemeral is to hate time and ultimately history. Cultural pyramid builders try futilely to negate time and only succeed in wasting it. The United States, as the epitome of humanistic culture and dime-store living, is still the envy of the world for precisely these reasons. Cheap and disposable articles are manufactured, inadequately though lovely buildings torn down and replaced, not out of any contempt of culture, but by a healthy respect for time, present time, and thus a respect for future time as well. In the long run, it will be manifest that the ephemeral culture of humanism has been more productive of enduring culture than its rivals and predecessors. Its wastes and mistakes are the luxury of experimentation, of trial and error, all evidences of freedom. In this emphasis on time, the public schools have been invaluable, not only in the extreme stress of progressive education on preparation for life, but in basic education's insistence on a similar preparation for life by means of intellectual tools and skills. Moreover, the emphasis on time has not been the meaningless and directionless goal of Greek and Roman pessimism, but an optimistic faith in the 
subordination of time and space to the fulfillment of man, an ideal of neo-Christian character and Christian derivation. Humanism, of course, has not exercised all the cultural pyramid builders in its own ranks, as witness the Marxists, and, in every area, the extensive status-seeking lust. But this is indicative of the failure of humanism to give the dimension of identity and vocation provided by true Christianity, and, while a failure does not detract from the importance of its restoration of the ephemeral to a place of dignity and meaning. Seventh, technology is an important result of humanism, and very clearly so. The emphasis on man and his fulfilment made it inevitable that man put knowledge and science to his service. Certainly, if the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, this is no less true of science, art and all knowledge. Although the outcome has been the steady seizure of these things by the state on the principle that man and his science is a creature of the state, even the state must do it in lip service to the humanist ideal and knowledge and science are treated as instrumental to man's fulfilment. Technology has been made an inescapable fact of cultural activity and added a new dimension to man by liberating him from the limitations of his hands and immediate mental or physical activity. By instruments of computation and automation, man has become more fully man and added to his reach in every respect, added dimension to his life and living, while failing to give identity and meaning to man's added powers, the fact nonetheless remains that man has gained immeasurably by means of technology. To despise technology and its contributions is to despise life and time. Education has not only stimulated technology by creating a demand for it, but also by gearing education to the furthering of man's subjugation of natural forces to human ends. In view of man's biblical mandate to subdue the earth in terms of his kingly office, such a result of contemporary education and culture is by no means to be despised, but must be recognised as an imperative requirement of any true culture. More could be said to indicate the important contributions of the Enlightenment and its cultural development, one of whose great monuments is the modern school. It has been a movement of tremendous power, swimming across every continent in only a few centuries. Nonetheless, while in many respects a great liberating force, it has been also the source of the greatest actual and potential slavery history has yet known. By its agnostic secularism, it has become the fountainhead of tyranny. The vast dividing line between God's absolute and legislative authority and man's delegated and ministerial power has been dissolved and the secular state made steadily the source of an absolutism exceeding God's own exercise of power. Rulers, presidents, senators, governors and judges no longer sit in term of a higher and transcendental law, government and court, but, but as law and authority incarnate. Hence the growing necessity that a president have the father image or a comparable significance in that he carries now primarily the weight of final authority on his shoulders and must play God. A man stands now in front of judges who increasingly know no law beyond the state, 
and the man is thus helpless, both because the court is too closely identified with law, and because secular man has less and less any faith in an appeal to Caesar's God. Relativism has thus robbed life of the dimension and perspective of God's absolute law and the possibility of withstanding the demonic forces of history. Man's radical impotence is the outcome, in that no power above and beyond human power can arm or defend the oppressed man. Thus, the most demonic of all tyrannies is that which relativism produces, in that the assurance of hope and victory is undercut, and the dimension of fulfilment, never more clearly offered to man, becomes thus a sardonic mockery of his importance. As Van Rysen has pointed out, quote, The disintegration of existence, that is, the dissolution of coherence in the elements of existence, has reached an advanced stage for a great many people. End quote. In this disintegration of existence, the state schools have played an important part. Man cannot live by bread alone, nor can he live by bread and ideas. How then does he, or can he, truly live? The answer of Jesus was clear-cut. Quote, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. End quote. Matthew 4.4 4. The true circumstance of life is God and his word, and only in terms of this can man have identity and fulfilment. The miscellaneous tag ends of various cultures now taught, together with technology, as education, are not education, but scraps from the educational table. Again, the disintegration of existence, ironically running parallel with the radical improvement in the conditions of existence, has been especially marked in the realm of the family. The decline and erosion of the Christian concept of the family is one of the most far-reaching tragedies of this era. As has been pointed out, one of the main points of radical cleavage between Christianity and the Roman Empire was the refusal of Christianity to see the church in Roman fashion as an aspect of the state, the function of religion then being the provision of social cement. The unity and absolutism of the state was thus broken, making possible the modern conception of liberty. The unity of life in the ancient world was a unity of a most dangerous nature. Religion was an aspect of the life of the state, in that the state, its ruler, or some aspect of its being, was divine. Accordingly, every aspect of life, art, agriculture, commerce, everything, was an aspect of the life of the state. Religion, state, and life were one. The temple, the butcher shop or shambles, bank, labour guild, and the family were all aspects of the life of the state, and the state was linked with the life of a god or company of gods. The societal and cosmic bond of heaven and earth, as set forth in the Tower of Babel and the Babylonian ziggurats, was the characteristic feature of life and antiquity outside of Israel, and it was this unity which Christianity steadily destroyed, despite attempts of some churchmen to recreate it, and which now the modern state and school seek to re-establish. 
The unity of the ancient divinized state was a unity without transcendence, because the concept of community, because the concept of continuity, the bond of heaven and earth, made time and eternity subject to a common life, the life of the gods, while superior was not transcendent and lacked a radical discontinuity with the world of flux. Thus the gods too were subject to defeat and eclipse, creatures themselves of mutability and decay. Thus, while the realm of the gods might on the one hand be far greater in dignity and remoteness than that of Christian theology with its doctrine of the Incarnation, on the other hand, the realm of the gods was subject to the same law of change as the world of man, whereas for Christian theology the two realms can never be confused. The essence of this conflict, never understood by Gibbon, but decisive to Western history, centred on the two natures of Christ. The definition of Chalcedon 451 spoke of, quote, Our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, end quote. This Jesus Christ is, quote, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognised in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the peoples from the earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. End quote. The issue was all important. To assert that the human can become the divine, that the eternal and temporal can intermingle, that time and eternity can have an independent or co-equal existence, is to temporalize eternity and make it no longer determinative of time. Moreover, the temporal is then at fault only in that it is temporal, and the goal of man is seen in eternalizing himself and his order, in trying to create a church order or a social order which will freeze time into eternity, an ideal zealously pursued in medieval and modern no less than ancient times. The implications of Chalcedon are a denial of the validity of this. The weakness of man is not metaphysical, it is not finitude, as ancients, scholastics, neo-orthodox and existentialist thinkers would have it, it is ethical. It is not, quote, the quest for certainty, unquote, man must renounce, but rather the very quest for eternity which Dewey himself sought in his great community, the actualization of eternity in time, the achievement of a final order, the end of history, the denial of Chalcedon, is the rejection of the determination of time by eternity, together with a refusal to let time be time. 
time must be eternalized, or at the very least arrested. The goal in every area of life becomes this contempt of time, expressed idealistically or cynically. But, in the Christian sense, to respect eternity is to respect time, and such ability as early Christianity had in providing a new social order, in providing what William Carroll Bark has called the frontier thinking of that age, came with this sundering of the deadly unity of ancient culture, the bond of heaven and earth. It is this bond which made Babylon a type of all the opposition to God offered by man and Satan in Revelation. It was the attempt to overcome this sundering with all its cultural implications which marked the Christological controversy. The state-controlled churchmen, with their allegiance to an eternalized absolutism and a state-centered unity of time and eternity, were hostile to the attempt to force that separation. Chalcedon was thus a death sentence on the ancient world and the beginning of true liberty. Hellenic thought, however, within the Church of Rome, sought to re-establish the bond and, as scholasticism gives evidence, reintroduced the confusion. Luther failed to purge it from the Church, while Calvin again restored the significance of Chalcedon in this respect. The effects of the Reformation are now rapidly being destroyed and the state is again becoming the ancient unity of heaven and earth, the focus of life and meaning. It is both the ancient and new Leviathan, offering itself as the true opium of the masses, the source of all wealth, service, security, futurity and meaning. Against all this, the Christianity which came to focus at Chalcedon made a radical stand so that even Sozomen, writing a little earlier and coming from the more subservient East, could still affirm that the family belongs to God and not the state. Such a concept was alien to a world which felt that the two were inseparable, and what belonged to the God of the state most certainly belonged to the state also. But today this way of Chalcedon is disappearing, and all the gains it represented ignored forgotten or despised. Abortion had been an early battle line, pagan thinkers either opposing it as an infringement of state rights or defending it as necessary to the state. When opposed in terms of father rights by paganism, it was in terms of the religion of the group, that is, ancestor worship, the veneration of the past and the solidarity of the social structure, rather than in terms of an absolute law The argument of Christianity thus introduced a radical note, namely that life belongs to God rather than to the social group. It is precisely this note that is now being submerged by the rise of statism. The structure of the family as an order from God and having certain rights beyond the state and its law is now disappearing and education has been especially instrumental in this erosion. The Western family system has gone through a variety of changes in the past 20 centuries. Now it faces not only its own decline, but the disappearance of an order that will recognize its freedom. It is again being absorbed into a larger family, the state conceived as the ultimate order of man. This state now possesses means to establish its power and dominion as never before. Liberty 
is thus no longer a God-given dimension of life, but the area of toleration permissible to a state. And man, having no faith in any area of fulfilment other than the state, however much he may crave liberty from the state, is in actuality seeking merely license and escape. For freedom without faith becomes merely a desire for self-indulgence and an escape from responsibility. And the modern confusion of time and eternity makes a consistent and valid doctrine of liberty an impossibility. The disintegration of existence is, therefore, a product of that same confusion from whence Chalcedon once rescued a disintegrated world. When a world disintegrates, nothing more quickly becomes contentable than its dead values, nothing more dead than its fallen gods, and nothing more offensively fetid than its old necessities. This will be no less true of the values of this dying age, of which one of the chiefest is the statist school. If the new order is capable of breaking with statism, it will, in due course, turn on every citadel of statism, the school no less than any other. At present, nothing seems more unlikely, although straws in the wind indicate the direction of the present temper. Government figures indicate that, in the middle and late 1940s, the state schools had 90% of the pupil population, with 10% in private schools of all classes. By 1959, the figure stood at 84% in state schools and 16% in private schools. According to R. L. Hunt, quote, You can no longer take the public schools for granted, end quote, and he cites eight trends militating against such schools. But much more is involved. The state school is radically involved in the contemporary culture, both as a product thereof and its champion. In spite of adverse trends, it will survive as long as the culture survives and no longer. To this culture, contemporary state religion seems radically wrong, but not a compulsory state education. But between the two, no real difference exists. Both require the compulsive power of the state for whatever the culture deems necessary. Compulsion in religion was, in an earlier era, a social necessity, even as it now is in education. The cause of religion then required compulsion, even as the cause of education now requires compulsion and the state. In both instances, compulsion has been productive of very marked gains of a sort and of very heavy penalties as well. But that education may play an even more important role in another age by no means requires that education be status in even the slightest degree. Statist education will remain for all the vehemence of the attacks on it and will increase its reliance on and subservience to the state as long as the contemporary culture remains. But with the collapse of that culture, the education of that culture will rapidly wither away and we are at the end of an age in an era turning rapidly on itself and looking vainly thus far for a new sense of direction. Such direction is requisite for new life and vitality. Long before the medieval culture gave way to another, its men were cynical and contemptuous of its values. Nevertheless, the overall jurisdiction and authority of the church 
successfully survived the cynicism and only foundered against the rocks of new faiths. Despite their cynicism, men could not think of a world apart from that church, and indeed, some of the most biting of cynics, Erasmus included, required that world. So the modern concept of the overall government and jurisdiction of the state will survive the bitterest resentment and cynicism as readily as did the church. It is not the satirists of the venality of priests or the frauds of tax assessors who can create a new culture, but only those who move, not in barren hostility, but in terms of an act of faith which gives new ground and structure to society. Quote, the hollow men, end quote, of T.S. Eliot, now govern the world, and are its citizens also, all alike haunted by the sense of onrushing disaster, tormented by the pointlessness of life, and, in an age of scientific precision, given to a religious and philosophical vagueness and ambiguity, in art, love, religion, and all of life, technique has become the substitute for meaning and an escape from reality. Lacking hope for the future, man also tries to destroy the past and its decisiveness, as witness Sartre. What Levi calls Nietzsche's will to illusion is a characteristic now of an age, one self-consciously dedicated to illusion. The end of an age is always a time of turmoil, war, economic catastrophe, cynicism, lawlessness and distress. But it is also an era of heightened challenge and creativity and of immense vitality. And because of the intensification of the issues and their worldwide scope, never has an era faced a more demanding and exciting crisis. This, then, above all else, is the great and glorious era to live in, a time of opportunity, one requiring fresh and vigorous thinking, indeed, a glorious time to be alive. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.